And you here in the auditorium, thanks for joining us. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. Got a quiz for you this morning as we get started. Question, what are people afraid of? What kind of things are people afraid of? Now, this is, this is a survey that's taken and put together by a couple different groups, and they give the top ten answers, some are ties, but top ten answers of what Americans are afraid of. What do you think they said? I got that all at once. <laughs> Somebody said heights, right? What's that? Clowns. It's not up there. I thought the same thing. Okay. Here's what the survey said. Not enough money to retire. None of us have to worry about that. Okay. Social violence. We can understand this one, right? With the way the world has gotten. Bad weather. You know, storms, floods, hurricanes, things of that sort. That tied with dogs. The people are afraid of dogs. This one, diseases. Okay, it makes sense. This is right out of the pandemic. Then with diseases, it tied with seeing blood, especially your own. Okay, that would, that would do it for most people. Then some said the dark. Some said they're afraid of flying. Closed spaces. Some said snakes, bugs, spiders. They all grouped them together. Some said heights. And number one thing that people are afraid of doing, no, no. They feel like they're going to die if they have to do it. It is something that people don't want to do. No, it wasn't even taxes. Yeah, taxes didn't even show up. Social speaking. Speaking in public. I don't understand why that's a problem. Okay, so I'm thinking about this, and I'm basing this on some of the comments that I've heard from our congregation, that they're afraid of certain preaching. In fact, I've been told by some folk, that they said, I don't know if I want to keep on coming while you're doing a series about Satan. Because that's scary. By the way, it is. It really is. But is there a reason why we should take time to look at what the Bible says about him? Let me give you three reasons. Let me give you three reasons from the Bible. Number one, God and Jesus spoke about him. Jesus warned the crowds about him. He made it very clear. In fact, talking about Bible characters, Jesus talked about Satan more than anybody else. We also know this, God's Word talks a lot about these things are going to bother me moving around. So if you don't mind me putting them down just a little bit so I don't trip over them, much less the step. There's, there's also that idea that the Scriptures is given by inspiration and is profitable. For da, 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 da. So God's Word speaks about them, so it's beneficial to learn about Him. Because God's Word speaks about Him. In fact, the Word encourages us to really understand Him and His devices. Where He writes and He says that we're not to be ignorant of His devices, how He operates. So for you and I to take the time to say, okay, let's do this study on the believer's armor. Let's take a few weeks and just think about it. It's biblical to do, and it's important. Is it scary? Absolutely. I came into the building a couple weeks ago, late at night, And I should never do this when I'm doing a series on Satan. I'm walking through the building. I'm telling you there was somebody else in the building with me. There wasn't supposed to be. Okay? To my knowledge, there was no other car here. But it followed me around the foyer. And then I felt the hand touch me on the shoulder. Okay, okay, okay. Later on, I duplicated the field by pulling my coat this way. But it still gave me the heebie-jeebies. 
Yeah, and it still just freaked me out. Do you ever get freaked out by thinking about the spirit world? Okay, no? I'm the only one? Yeah. In Ephesians 6, he tells us about it. He says in the, about that whole idea, and we just, we've been reading this week by week, and it's, some of you have memorized it, where it's finally, my brethren, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day which is today, and having done all to stand. So very clearly, we know from this passage, we have the idea that we're in a spiritual battle. And this spiritual battle that we're, uh, we're against is the enemy is Satan, his demonic hordes that they're attacking. We've talked about that. We've explained that. I want to answer just a couple questions that have been coming up. And veering off, not from, a little bit from Ephesians 6, like I said, we're, we're not doing our full-fledged Bible study this morning. We're going to alter it a little bit. But I want to answer some of your questions that some of you have been asking in relation to this. Some have asked this question, where did he come from? Why did God make him so bad? Well, let's clarify that. Did God make Satan? Yes, he did. Yes, he did, okay? He was created by God at creation and was originally very good. Let me just point this out. The heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them, everything in the heavens included. And on the seventh day, God ended the work which he had made. What does God say about everything that he has made up to that point? And saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Satan was created not evil. Satan was created good. In fact, we read about his creation where Ezekiel writes, you are the anointed cherub. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. And he went on to say, you were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, because of your greatness. It was Satan that introduced into his own heart the evil. It wasn't God. God didn't make him evil. The question that some have asked is, then, then what happened? Satan led a rebellion against God when he fell. And we understand from Revelation chapter 12 that probably a third of the angels followed after him. Once they made a commitment, because of their knowledge and their awareness, they were confirmed in it. They were committed to what they chose. They didn't have a second chance or second choice. Like you and I get opportunities at times. Like Jonah, a second time the Lord gave him a, a chance to repent and change. Once Satan made his decision, he was confirmed in that. He was committed to that. And that happened, and after that he made that commitment, the scriptures gives names for him. And all these names that show up in scripture give you the idea of somebody evil, somebody awful, somebody terrible. And so they use different terms to describe him. The last term that I put up here was he's a deceiver. The way that he frequently deceives is by convincing people of this that he isn't. There are people who are out there that are thinking there is no such thing as a devil. That's not true. Jesus spoke to him. Jesus warned about him. And so the devil tries to convince people he's a non-entity. Or he convinces people that he's innocent. He's not that bad. He's a victim of his circumstances. That he couldn't help it. That he's not that evil. He is terrible. He is horrible. He is the murderer, the liar. He is the one who is out to attack you. Some think this. 
He's not that harmful. Uh, hey, if there's anything we can try to impress upon your mind is Satan is against you. He's against God. He's against all who claim to be God's children. So he led this rebellion and as a result, where has Satan been? Many people think Satan is ruling over hell today. That's not true. The, probably the fact is he's never even been to hell. According to the scriptures, he is walking about as a roaring lion, walking about in this planet, this world, this domain. In fact, in Ephesians, we already read it, that he is already in battle with us, that he is attacking us. He's not sitting in hell. He's not down there enjoying that domain. Nobody, by the way, Satan won't even enjoy hell. And so what happens according to the scripture is that Satan is around this world now and he's not even going to see hell or anything like it until after the tribulation period. After the tribulation, that future seven years of the worst time in all the earth, at the end of that time, Jesus is going to renew this earth and set up his kingdom on earth. To make sure that there is purity and holiness, he's going to remove Satan, have him bound and cast into a bottomless pit. He will stay there for 1,000 years. But at the end of the 1,000 years, he's released. He gets his last hurrah and he will come to the people who have populated planet earth at that time especially the many who are birthed during that period of time and he will come again like he did in the Garden of Eden to convince them to rebel against God. And it says as the sands of the seas there will be that many people who will follow him in rebellion. God will defeat him in that final rebellion after that thousand years and only then is he cast into the lake of fire which is eternal hell. Prior to that point, in our period of time, he has free reign moving about. He's called the prince of the air, the god of, the god of this age, the prince of this world. We even read an account from the early days of human history in the book of Job where we read there was a day when the sons of God, angels, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, where were you been? Satan answered and says, going to and fro of the earth, walking up and down throughout it. So Satan's not in hell. Some of you are convinced he's in Washington, D.C. Or he's in, in uh, Moscow. Satan's everywhere that he wants to be. He's not omnipotent, but he's moving around. And he's influential with his hordes. But did you catch something that's in this passage? Not only does he have access to this world at any place that he wants to be, he has access to heaven. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? Satan came also among the angels that presented themselves before the Lord. The Bible supports that idea that Satan, even during this period of time, even this, this wicked one, he has access to heaven at times. He goes there. What's he do? What's he do when he gets to heaven? Well, he lives up to his name. His name, Satan, means this, adversary, attacker, one who resists, one who opposes. Revelation 12 expands upon it and says that his, this is his job for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night. So Satan has access to heaven, and what does he do? He tattles on us, as if God doesn't know, but he tattles on us. He's accusing us. And the, 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 the shame of it is we give him plenty of ammo. By the way, we talk, walk, and when things we do wrong, it's easy for him to find accusation against us and say, God, how can you love Burgraf down in Lebanon? Look what he does. Look how he acts. Look what he says. 
And I, to my foolishness and shame, I blow it and Satan accuses. What is his purpose? To turn God against me. To try to say, God, he deserves to be cast into hell. He doesn't deserve answer prayers. He doesn't deserve your grace. And the truth is, I don't. I don't. Hey, you want a good phrase to say to people? They say, how you doing? Better than I deserve. Because we don't deserve any of God's blessings. None of us do. And Satan wants God to turn against us, to stop loving us. But what does Paul write? But there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Praise God we're not condemned. But Satan accuses us. And not only does he accuse us of the wrong that we do, he accuses and questions our motives. He questions why we did it. Do you remember what he did to Job? Do you remember how he said, Put your, your, the only reason Job is following you is that you bless him. Take your hand from him. Do something horrible to him and he's going to stop serving you. He will curse you. And so God allowed Satan to attack Job. And Job did not curse the Lord God. But Satan questions our motives. He challenges us. And so we read in scriptures about these times where Satan is pictured in heaven. We already saw the one in book of Job. We saw the other one in scripture, Revelation chapter 12, the third place in scripture where it gives us detail of Satan making accusation is the book of Zechariah. Can you find it? Okay. It's in the Old Testament. That's a hint. Okay. It's at the end of the Old Testament. Join me there. Zechariah chapter 3. It's a couple books right before the book of Matthew starts the New Testament. Zechariah chapter 3. It is an interesting text. It is, the, it is an account. It is one of eight different visions that Zechariah the prophet gets from God Almighty. And in this vision, he's going to see heaven. And he's going to see a trial taking place in heaven. And so for you and I to understand it, let's set the scene of this passage. What has happened is by the end of the book of Chronicles, the Jews who had lived in their land under the kings of Saul and David and Solomon and then many who followed, the Jews were in the land of Israel for many, many years. But they disobeyed. And because of their disobedience, they were eventually taken out of the land. Now, while they were in the land, even under the good kings, they have not been observing everything in the law. Do you remember that you had these years of jubilee, these Sabbath years? Every seventh year, what were they supposed to do with the land? Let it rest. A year that everything just rests. And they were supposed to then have everything conducted in a very low-keyed sense. And then every seven, seven years, they would not only have the seventh year of rest, but they would have the year of Jubilee on that 50th year, another year of rest back to back. And that was to help the land, help the crops, help with the economy and all that. Well, as you went through the period of the kings, they didn't observe it on a regular basis at all. That would be like shutting down all of America for one year. Be very tough. And so they didn't do it. And as a result, they missed 70 different Sabbath years and Jubilee years. So when God took them out of the land at the end of Chronicles, he said, I'm taking you out, and I'm going to take you out for 70 years to make up for all the time that you did not worship me in those 70 years the way you were supposed to. And so they're out of the land for 70 years. 
And at the end of the 70 years, Daniel gets that vision that they're going to go back within the next year. Uh, the other prophets, you got Ezra involved. They're all of a sudden saying, hey, we want to get back into the land. And the Persian king, the new empire now is under Persia, they decide that they're going to let the Jews go back. And they're not only going to let them go back, they're going to let the Jews go back and rebuild Jerusalem, and not only Jerusalem, but their temple. And so a group of Jews has back 50,000. Not many, but 50,000. They get back and they start rebuilding Jerusalem. They start rebuilding the temple. And they spend two years on building the temple, and then they stop. They've got the foundation laid, but they got tired. They got preoccupied. They quit the job. And the temple just sits there, foundation only, for another 16 years. Then Haggai the prophet shows up. And Haggai preaches, says, you're living in beautiful houses, but the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord you've left absolutely you know, in decay. You haven't rebuilt. So they get revival, and they start rebuilding the temple. Haggai is preaching, but Haggai is also old. And so what happens is Zechariah picks up Haggai's ministry of preaching and encouraging them to finish the temple, get it all done, put it all together. And during this time, Zechariah then starts having eight different visions. And he is now becoming the prophet to the people, the high priest, this is critical to this story, to the account, the high priest, his name is Joshua. Not Joshua from Moses' day. Not the book of Joshua. This is just a high priest in the tribe of the Levites who's named Joshua. He's the high priest. And we begin reading in chapter 3, verse 1. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord which has chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, this is the Lord, take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from you, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, this is the Lord speaking, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my charge, then you shall also judge my house, and shall also keep my courts, and I will give you places to walk among these that stand by. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. What in the world is happening? Joshua, as a representative of Israel, is standing before the Lord God Almighty in heaven. He is pictured there filthy because of the iniquity of the land, because of the sinfulness of the people. And as he's standing there before God, Satan is also standing at the right, high, right side. And according to the verses that I just read, Satan is there to resist him, is what my translation reads. Anybody have another translation or a footnote? What's that? 
I'm sorry, I'm, I'm deaf. Accuses. The word literally is Satan stands there to Satanize him. In Hebrew, it's the same word. It's the word to accuse, to oppose him. And so Satan is standing there to oppose and say, look at the Jews, look what they did, look what Joshua did. And as he's standing there, Joshua is representing the people. He's in filthy garments. The filthy garments are representative of his iniquities. Do you remember how Isaiah says, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags? It's a picture of our goodness before God in compared, there are, 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 we're stained. We don't look this good. You know, in, in a spiritual sense. If our sins were spotting our garments, we would look horrible. We would have a putrid stench about us. And so in heaven, this is what's being pictured. And the irony of it is, the very one, the very one who is accusing him before God is the very one that got him to do this, the rotten stuff. Hey, did any of you ever have a co- cousin like a Nellie Olson? <laughs> did you ever have one of them? We had one of, the, one of the cousins in the family that would encourage us to do stuff. When go to grandma and grandpa's, do stuff that we weren't supposed to do. And we would do it. And they would be right along with us doing it. But as soon as we go in the house, our cousin, Nellie Olson, would tell grandma and grandpa what we did. And it was like, but you're the, you were the ringleader. You're a big mouth traitor. That's what Satan does. Satan gets us to do wrong, makes it, makes it sound so good, and then he turns on us. And he accuses us, trying to get God to, be, to, to reject us. He accuses us no matter who it is. Joshua's the high priest. Joshua is the chosen person of Israel, the highest in all positions. Doesn't make any difference. Doesn't make any difference. Satan's going to accuse. Satan's going to attack. It doesn't make any difference what our position is. It doesn't make any difference if pastor, deacon, teacher, parent, boss, you know, leader. It doesn't make any difference. Satan's going to accuse. Satan's going to attack. And so not only does he attack, he is attacking people who are doing good things. Joshua was serving. That idea of standing before the Lord was the idea of literally of worshiping before the Lord. And while he's worshiping, Satan's pointing out his blemishes. So even while you are doing good things, you come, you worship, you read your Bible, you pray, you do those delightful things that the Lord is pleased with, Satan is even going to accuse you of doing it for selfish purposes like he did Job. It doesn't make any difference who you are. It doesn't even make any difference what you do. Satan is going to find a flaw and he's going to accuse you. He's going to accuse me. And like I said, the shame of it is, we more often than not, we give him stuff to accuse us with. And so he's attacking us. I'm sure he's accusing that the only reason you came to church this morning was supposed to, and he's saying something evil about many of you who are here, but he's questioning your motives. And so he attacks that way. And no one... No angel, not Joshua, is able to shut him down. They're not able to say, be quiet. Don't say that, you liar. Nobody. Heaven is silent except for one. There's only one that can shut him down and shut him up. Did you see it in the text? It says, L-O-R-D, capital. Jehovah speaks out, and he says to him, it says in your, your Bible, the Lord rebuke you, literally shut you up. 
stop you from speaking. The Lord, oh Satan, even the Lord had that chose Jerusalem shut you down. Stop it. Don't say anymore. Quiet. Now in this text he goes on and it makes it clear God has come to Joshua's defense. And in particular he's going to be described as the angel of the Lord. You see in heaven we're not left alone. We're not, we're not all by ourselves, and, and, and all of a sudden he's accusing us. And this is the beauty of the text. Satan accuses us, rightfully or wrongfully, he accuses us, but we have someone in heaven who will defend us. We have an advocate in heaven. You know, when, in my haunt, you all know this, we love Williamsburg. And so when we went down there one of these last times, we sat in a courthouse for several sessions to just hear different people talk about how the court system worked. Very interesting in early America. They believed in the idea of, um, what's the, what, the phrase, you know, not a long, uh, not a long court case. Um, yeah, with a jury, just an expedient court case. You know, quick, you know, let's not have something long and drawn out. And so what they would do back in colonial America is if you were on trial and you were being judged by several people of your peers, let's say the 11 or 12, whatever the number may be back at that time, they would take them into a room in this courthouse. The room was about, that they had to step in, the room was about this size of the platform, and I'm talking up to the bear. So it was just this area. The 12 men, 11 men would go in there and they would stay in there without any water, without any food, without a bathroom break until they made the decision. That would expedite things, would it not? <laughs> and the other thing that I learned is most people who were taken to court, they did not hire a lawyer. They represented themselves. The reason being, back in those days, they, they said this, if somebody hired a lawyer they were probably guilty and the lawyer was going to know the loophole to get them out. Otherwise, they would defend themselves. Wow. Wow, aren't you glad we're not left that way in heaven? Aren't you glad? We need a lawyer in heaven. We need somebody to come to our aid. We need somebody to speak on our behalf. He's the advocate. Who is that? Well, in this passage, it talks about the angel of the Lord standing by Joshua and, and basically opposing Satan. Who is the angel of the Lord? Watch several things that come out of the text, and you tell me who it is. Minister, Joshua is ministering before this entity, this heavenly being. He is distinct from Jehovah. He is associated with him, but he's distinct. As well, he is called L-O-R-D. Lord. As well, the angels do exactly what he says. Give him a miter, change his clothing. As well, he is the one who is able and responsible for removing Joshua's iniquity. As well, we go a little bit further. He says that he's going to be coming sometime in the future. In the future to Zechariah's message. Back in those days. Somebody's coming. I'm going to be coming. In fact, he describes, he is described as the branch. He is described in this text as my servant. He is described in this text as the stone. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who comes to the defense of Joshua and bids his case and, and stops Satan's accusations and attacks. What does he do? Well, according to this text, he shuts Satan up. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for doing that. We need that. 
He also orders the filthy garments to be removed. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for removing our dirty garments. Thank you that Jesus can take away our sin. As well, he causes Joshua to have new clothes, a change of clothing, clean garments that aren't spotted with sin to be put upon him. Just like it says that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, took upon himself that we might be made the righteousness in him. He shares with us. So his 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 uh, presence of holiness in the sense that standing before the Lord, what does God see? God doesn't see our sinfulness anymore. God sees the righteousness of Christ covering us. Wow. Fantastic passage. He goes, he says, okay, according to this text, who's he willing to help? Well, Joshua, the sinful priest. He was willing to come to his aid. He was also willing to come to the aid of the entire nation. He talks about how the iniquity of the land will be removed how he's going to help out all the Jews. He also in the New Testament says, if we, if we sin, and he's writing to believers, if we sin, we have an advocate. We have one who is willing to help us out. Oh, and it also says, and not for our sins only, but he is also willing to advocate for the sins of the world, for the unsaved, for those who have yet to believe. He is willing to come to their rescue if they but believe. He is an amazing person. What does it all mean for you and me? How does this all gel together? What it means for you and me is this, is that we are guilty. Yes, no? Just to, just to make sure, okay? What does the Bible say? All have sinned. That's all of us. What's it say? All of us have come short of the... There is how many righteous... None. Okay, that's us. We're all guilty. Satan can accuse every single one of us. But Jesus is willing to advocate, to be our lawyer, to be our defender before God. And as such, he comes to our rescue. There's a story just that came out of a reality of a court system not too long ago. The lawyer who was defending somebody accused of murder, they didn't find a body. But they had all the other evidence that the person must have passed away. And so they put this person on trial for murder. And so as they were doing their concluding arguments, the lawyer, the defender, said to the jury, I have a surprise for you. Just to make sure that you understand, my, my client is totally innocent. In two minutes, the so-called victim is going to walk through those doors. Well, the time is ticking down, ticking down, ticking down, and everybody starts wondering, Really? Really, there wasn't a murder after all? In fact, all the heads turned as the lawyer was saying, 10, 9, 8. Guess where everybody looked? To the doorway. You know, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Everybody's watching the door. Nobody came out, came through. Nobody entered. And the lawyer said, You were all watching. You were all looking. You must have some doubt. If there's any doubt, you cannot find my client guilty. And he sat down. The jury is dismissed. In five minutes, the jury comes back. And the jury finds him guilty. The lawyer was amazed. The lawyer went to the head foreman of the jury, and he said, how is it that you didn't find my, my, my defendant innocent? You guys were all staring. You were looking. There was doubt 
He said, all of us were staring except for the defendant. He never turned his head. <laughs> That's you and me. We are really guilty. And we stand and Satan knows we're guilty. You know you're guilty. You know that you have sinned. You have lied. You have disobeyed. But we have a Jesus in heaven who will advocate for us. Who gave his life for us who died for us and rose again so that we can have forgiveness. And if we call upon the name of the Lord, we shall be saved. We are secured. We are safe because of what Jesus is willing to do. He's the only one, the only way, the truth, and life who comes down from heaven and makes our way unto the Father. And as such, we're safe. We're secure. If Satan accuses you and me, we have an advocate in heaven that says, but they're mine. They've believed on me and I've given them my word that I will forgive them and give them eternal life. Father, you can't condemn them. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So we're safe. We're secured. We are also individuals that as this text talks about, he's our propitiation, our covering, we are individuals who are not only safe and secure, but we're supposed to serve him. We're supposed to respond. Did you see the text? Did you see what Jesus says, the Lord says to him as the story unfolds where we read a little bit further on that the angel of the Lord, verse 6, the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua. Does anybody have another word for protested? Anybody have something? Admonished? Let me give you, give you a literal translation here. Declared repeatedly. The angel of the Lord declared repeatedly to Joshua, and he said this to Joshua. Watch how it unfolds. He says, walk in my ways. Keep my charge. Then you will judge my house. I will exalt you as kings and princes so that you are able to be in that kingdom in the future and you will experience the area of being over ten cities, over other cities, and you will have a place to walk in the presence of even the angels in the heavenlies. So Jesus in this passage provides not only security, but he says, hey, listen, we got to serve him. Isn't that exactly what we read? My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not, because if any man sin, we have an advocate. But his advocating doesn't say go out and sin and do whatever you want. It calls us to holiness. It calls us to living for him. Billy Neal Moore gets out of the army. He's released, comes back to his home here in the States after serving in Germany, and there he is. He comes back, and his checks were being sent to his wife to care for his child. And so he wasn't receiving his regular checks. He had set it up with the army. They'd send him to his house. He gets to his house, and he finds out his wife is not living faithfully to him. She's not taking care of the child. So he takes the child, and he says, I need to get my army paychecks. And they say, it's going to take at least, at least three months to through the system before she stops getting the checks. What am I to do? How am I to live? I've got no money. She's taken everything. Three months. So he goes and asks some people for charity. Nobody helps him. A buddy of his says to him, he says, I have an idea. I have a neighbor who has $10,000 in his house. If you go there, I'll, I'll tell you how to get in the house you take the 10000 you rob him and give me some of the money. We'll split it. 
and that'll get you by. So this man who has never committed a crime before, feeling desperate, doesn't excuse it, but he does the crime. He's in the house, in the dark, feeling around, and all of a sudden he hears a step and he feels something against his leg. Somebody else is in the room with him. He reaches down and he grabs what hit his leg and he realizes he's, he's holding a gun barrel. And this gun barrel is not his. And so he pushes it away, the gun discharges. The homeowner was protecting his own house. They wrestle for the gun, he gets the gun away, and he uses it on the homeowner. Mr. Stapleton falls down. He's still breathing, but Moore turns on a light and he looks around for the money and he sees that in this pocket is a billfold. He rummages the man's pocket, rummages his desk, and he leaves with these hundreds of hundreds of dollars. And he thinks, I'm okay. Within hours, he's arrested. And as soon as the police came to arrest him, he, he admitted right away, I did it, I did I was wrong, I did it. His lawyer says to him, he says, because you've never committed such a crime before, la-da-da-da-da-da, you'll probably get a sentence, but it, you know, you'll survive, and it might be a number of years. He's hauled before the, court, the judge. He declines having a jury. I'm guilty. I'm at fault. I shot the man. He ended up killing him. The man died. So I'm guilty. I'm so sorry. Explains his circumstances. I was wrong. Da, da, da. And the judge says, I'm so glad you saved the taxpayers' dollars by not going through a court case. But the law demands that you be put into prison and you be executed and gives him 90 days from his execution. He is taken from one jail to the prison where they're going to do the execution two days before. They are preparing him, and as they're preparing him, they're going to shave his head and do all the things. And he, re- he has, in this time period, gotten saved. Heard the gospel, responded in jail, gotten saved. He's fearful of the process of death. He knows he's going to be with the Lord. He's repenting. He's contacted the family, asked them to forgive him, but he is facing death within the next 48 hours. It gets to 24 hours and somebody comes and delivers the writs to him that say we have to go through an appeal process. The appeal process stays the execution and for 16 years it's going through the appeal process. The people who push the appeal process is the Stapleton family who have forgiven him when he asked for forgiveness. Who come to see him and visit him though he has killed one of their family members. They befriend him. They even plead his case. And, by, and then some 20 years go by in total, he is released from prison, but he's put in the custody of the Stapleton family. Together they begin a ministry traveling in the 90s to churches around America preaching on grace and forgiveness. And they talk about how they are bonded in Christ. And when Moore speaks, as he spoke multiple times, he made it very clear that he owes everything to Jesus and this family who forgave him. That his life was no longer his own. That he was rescued. My friend, your life is no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. Jesus Christ gave his life for your forgiveness. And so what do we do? We should be praising him and worshiping him. 
And today we want to do that with singing some songs about the greatness and grace of God our Father. Today we want to give him worship as we celebrate his dying, his burying, his resurrection for us via this communion. So I ask you to join me this morning in song as we start praising the Lord and giving him the glory and preparing our hearts for communion. You sing with me as we sing Hallelujah for the Cross. (laughs) 